If you would, please join me in turning your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews and chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now here at Zion, it's our practice to ordinarily work our way through particular books of the Bible and go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We call that expositional or expository preaching, and there are there's great benefit to that for lots of different reasons, one of which is it allows God in his providence to speak to us in accordance to with what he, uh, his agenda, rather than even the preacher's agenda or the session's agenda. And it's always interesting when the text that uh, comes before us for a particular week coincides with something that's going on providentially with the life of the church. And I think uh, when we come to this passage in Hebrews chapter 9, it seems very clear that uh, we have that situation given all the events of Zion, our particularization, our becoming a particular church, beginning this uh, new life as a church, uh, and there's a theme of service, how Jesus Christ has set us apart, has purified us for service in his kingdom, and so it's good for us to hear that as we read this passage together. Uh, So please stand with me as we read. We'll read uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. We're standing out of love and reverence for God's holy, infallible, and errant word. And so hear now the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the, table, the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail." These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, from dead works, to serve the living God. So it's the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and again, this is a difficult section of the book of Hebrews. We ask that you would give us clarity 
and understanding. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. Would you fix our eyes on Jesus? Remind us of the gift that we have in him through the sacrifice of himself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Pastor John Piper is the son of a man who served as a, he was a fiery preacher. And Piper heard many stories from his father's pulpit, but one of the most significant that he heard uh, that affected his life was that of a man who was a member of the church for, or attended the church for a long time, who was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was very hardened against the Lord, and the congregation prayed for this man for decades. And then one Sunday at the him near the end of the service, this now old man made his way to the front of the church and prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. But what was remarkable was as he did, or in that time, he was sobbing. He was sobbing, he was weeping, and saying over and over again, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. He was a man who had received forgiveness for his sins. He had the gift of eternal salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ. He had the gift of eternity. And yet he was broken because he realized that he had wasted all of the life that the Lord had, had given him. And beloved, every one of us desires to have a life that is worthy a worthy life, a meaningful life, a joyful life, one that we can look back on and be proud of, that we can look back with joy. And God says in his word that a life like that comes only through service to the living God, lives lived in service of the living God. Uh, our, we, we say the chief end of man, the primary purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And those two things, glorifying God and enjoying him, find their focus not simply in a mental acceptance of this, these truths, but as God works through his people to serve him. But service is an act of worship, and so therefore, service, true service of the living God requires us to draw near to him, draw near to him in worship, which then presents us two problems. We must be granted access. We must be able to come into his presence. We must be able to draw near, but also we must be willing. We must have the desire and the readiness to go. And as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, we've repeatedly seen how God has accepted us into his presence through the blood of Jesus, through the work of our high priest. He, is, he has made us able to come. But isn't, that, isn't it true that that's only really part of the problem? Isn't it true that even though we have been granted access, we are hesitant we are hesitant to draw near. We are hesitant to serve for all sorts of reasons. Um, scripture is clear that we are a 
two parts uh, that are unified, a, a body and a soul, or uh, the words Paul uses are an outer man and an inner man, or inner self. And our inner self can be one of the greatest enemies to us obtaining this gift of service. Because it's our inner self that loudly proclaims our unworthiness, loudly reminds us of our sinfulness, tells us of our weakness. And so if we have any hope of being able to draw near to our God in worshipful service, something needs to be done about that inner self, that that voice of the inner self. In fact, God has to do something about it. And praise God, beloved, that's exactly what we see in this passage today, is that Jesus Christ came, he shed his blood, not merely to purify us so that we are able to come into God's presence, but he came to shed his blood to purify even our conscience so that we would be willing to come, eager and confident and joyfully serve him. And so that's what we need to see is that in Jesus Christ, God has purified our conscience so that we can serve him with joy. So these two problems of being, being made able to serve and being willing to serve, that's, this text actually covers both of those. And so that's how we'll look at the passage. We'll begin by considering how Jesus has made us able to serve. We've seen this throughout the book of Hebrews, but he he highlights it again, and he gives us a picture, as he's been doing, of by comparing the former arrangement, the former covenant, the former priesthood, the former way of doing things, and what we now have in Jesus Christ. And now he's doing that by showing us the actual tabernacle itself that there was something in the tabernacle, in the tent, where the people met with God that highlighted that there was something deficient that needed to be fixed through the blood of Christ that allowed us access into his presence. So there was the structure of the tent. He highlights how you could picture the tent as, or the, the worship area as three areas. There was the tent itself, which had two compartments, and then there was outside the tent. And with, so with the two compartments within the tent, there was the first tent was the holy place. The holy place had the golden lampstand, and it had a table that had the showbread, the, ho- the holy bread. And the priests would go into that first section doing what, what our text calls their ritual duties. And there were lots of different priests that would do this. The second section, which was... Within the tent itself, there was a curtain. They would, there was a section, section the most holy place. And that section had the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, which was overlaid with the mercy seat, and then it had the golden cherubim who were overshadowing this. And this most holy place was the place where God himself would dwell. And the priests, while they would go into the first section, they were not permitted to go into the second section. Only the high priest, only one man, was permitted to go into the holy, most holy place. And he could only go one day a year, and it says he couldn't go without blood. It was, it was a, uh, he had to be purified himself. And so by this arrangement, God was showing that God's people were kept away from drawing near, that even the priests couldn't draw near. 
But there's, there was also something else. There was a kind of a hidden defect in the tabernacle structure itself. Um, when I was a kid, for a period of time, I collected baseball cards. And every now and then, uh, the baseball card manufacturers would accidentally release a a card that was had a misprint or a defect in it. And unless you knew that it was there, which people always found out, you, when you looked at the card, you wouldn't know necessarily. But once you knew, then you saw it and you said, oh yeah, that's, that's an error. And there was a similar hidden defect here in the structure of the tabernacle because there was one other piece of furniture that was in the tabernacle. We read about it in our Bible readings this morning, and that was the altar of incense. Exodus chapter 30 talks about the altar of incense, which was a golden altar of incense. And Moses was commanded to put the altar of incense in the holy place. It was right in front of the curtain. In front of the curtain. And if you remember from the book of Luke, the very beginning when Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father, is ministering in the temple... He is a priest. He's doing his ritual duty. He sees the, the angel Gabriel standing to the right of the altar of incense. It was clearly in the holy place. And yet look what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, verse 3, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with all sides. He, he put the altar of incense in the wrong place. And if you've ever heard a preacher give an illustration with the wrong details, you would know how jarring this must have been. These people understood, whoa, that's not where the altar of incense is. He, he, he just screwed up. <laughs> but beloved, this is God's word. There, this is no mistake. This is no mistake. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And I think what we can see here, if we remember to that passage that Elder Bell read from Revelation, the altar of incense is symbolic of the prayers of God's people. And in the old arrangement, that altar was placed on this side of the curtain, so that neither the people nor the priests nor even their prayers were granted access into God's presence. It was a hidden defect of the old covenant itself. It showed our separation. But beloved, do you remember what happened? What glorious event happened when Jesus died on the cross? The temple veil, that's the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place, was torn from top to bottom symbolizing that God's people now have access into God's presence. In Christ Jesus, who has now passed through the heavens into God's real tent, the true tent, he resides. And in him, we now have access into his presence. And as we've been told over and over in this book, we have boldness and confidence to pray to our God because our high priest Jesus always lives to intercede on our behalf. In Christ Jesus now, our, even our prayers are welcomed into God's presence. So what formerly we were kept apart, now 
we are permitted to draw near in Jesus Christ. We've been given that right. We have been made able to come. But also, we need to be made willing to come. Our author talks about these sacrifices, and clearly there were lots of sacrifices that were required. The sacrifices were demanded by God, but they were deficient in and of themselves. They cleansed the outer self, but they did nothing for the spiritual condition of God's people. In fact, just the opposite. So kids, the, the passage talks about a conscience. And maybe you don't know what a conscience is. This is an important concept, important thing for you to understand what it is. Maybe you watched the old Disney movie Pinocchio, and so maybe you've heard of a conscience. That was what Jiminy Cricket was always talking about. He was supposed to be Pinocchio's conscience. A conscience is something that we all have. It is a gift from God that is the organ or the part of our mind or our heart that evaluates right and wrong. So when you do something that you know is wrong and you are convicted of that, that is your conscience that is convicting you. And just the opposite, um, it, it, there might be times where people might say something is wrong, but you know that it's right. Maybe you're at lunch with a bunch of friends and you decide that you're going to pray, giving thanks for your food, and your friend's like, what are you doing that? You know, that's weird. We, don't, we don't, shouldn't do that. And you say, no, it's actually a good thing to give thanks for what the Lord has given. So it is this means that the Lord has given to judge between right and wrong, but our consciences also judge us, ourselves, not just the things we do, but begin to judge us. And if you think about the sacrifices that would have happened in the Old Testament, if you were, if you were an Old Testament Israelite and you are bringing, you're seeing sacrifices upon sacrifice, you're bringing animal upon animal, and you're seeing all these animals killed because of your sin, because God has said you have sinned and you need to sacrifice, and you see their blood shed, blood everywhere. I think if that was me, I would think, okay, well, God commands me to do this, and God says I must do it. God says that this makes me fit for the community, but I certainly don't feel clean. I certainly don't feel holy. I feel terrible. I, I must be an awful sinner that there's so much blood, so much death. How could I ever be? I must be a terrible person. And in part, that was what the sacrifices were for, to highlight our sinfulness to show the severity of our sin against a holy God. It, they purified us on the outside. That's, that's what our text says. Purified us on the outside, but it didn't make our hearts right. It didn't give us confidence to draw near. In fact, it just turned up the volume on our conscience to say, woe is me. I am a sinner. Is there any hope for me? But beloved, 
what we have to understand is that the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience. Look at, look at what it says in verse 13 and 14. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. They really did something. They sanctified for the purification of the flesh. How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living of God? He's, he shed his blood to purify our conscience. So kids, we have this conscience which God has given to us, but our consciences can be impure. Our consciences can be wrong. We can judge right or wrong, but we might not be right. In, in our judgment, our conscience might be off. And there's, when, it, when he speaks of purifying our conscience, I think there's, we see that in a couple different ways. One, he can purify it from a wrong, wrongly functioning conscience to a rightly functioning conscience. Our, we, we judge things based upon all sorts of different wrong means of judging how we feel. Uh, what we think reasonably makes sense, or maybe what we think other people think. Those are the means that we judge things. But remember, the, one of the promises of the new covenant was that God said, I will put my law, my law, in your mind and write it on your hearts. And I think part of that is he is saying, I'm going to work to fix your conscience. So it is judging rightly so that your conscience is in line with the law of God and judging it appropriately, judging your actions, judging yourself. But it's not just a wrong to a right, but also a wounded conscience to a healed conscience. I mean, Jesus Christ really forgives you are truly forgiven in Jesus Christ. And we can look at the sum, we're not a sum total of our past successes or our past failures, but so often we, we look at those things. We look at those failures. We look at those sins, and those become our identity. Right? I am, I am such a sinner. I am a wicked person. I can't take those words back. I can't take those actions back. Beloved in Jesus Christ, you are truly forgiven so that your conscience should no longer be accusing you of your unworthiness or your imperfections or your sinfulness, but it should be declaring you forgiven and worthy to come into his presence, a recipient of his bountiful grace and love forever and ever so that it is judging you correctly according to God's covenantal and loving promises. He comes to, to purify our conscience of these things. And the result of that, beloved, the result, the intent, is to give true meaning to our lives. See what it says? He, verse 14 he offered himself without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's our conscience that can hold us back from drawing near in service. These dead works certainly include sinful works, but I think it's also 
right to view this as dead as in useless, powerless, meaningless works. As one um, commentator said, it's building empires that will fall, buying things that will not satisfy or last, or serving ambitions that are destined for the grave. And I guess, beloved, is that, is, does that characterize your life? Are you settling for less than true meaning in serving our God because you're holding back in fear or shame or whatever it might be. Lord Jesus Christ came to give us an alternative, to, make, to, to open the way and to draw us near so that we might have his best, so we might be able to serve with confidence and joy. And so let's do that. So let's, let's talk about this for just a, a, a few minutes. I, it has been a genuine joy for me here at Zion Presbyterian Church to see the members of Zion serve. And that was something that we talked about when we got started two years ago, and it's been a joy to see that. And I've seen the joy in those who have given themselves to this work, seeing the joy in your eyes and hear it in your voices. It is a blessing. God promises the blessing, and I've seen the blessing. Um, at the same time, some of us have struggled over the past two years to serve, to give ourselves to service, and or struggled to do it with zeal and joy. Uh, sometimes it's felt like a burden rather than a joy. And the past two years, I mean, let's not beat around the bushes, was a very difficult time to serve, culturally, internally, all, all the things. It's been very difficult. And yet, let's not pin the blame totally on our circumstances. I hear, I've, I've heard things from some of us that I heard, I've heard out of my heart that have come out of my heart over several, several years. And it may not be exactly these words, but it's things like this. You don't want me. You obviously don't know me well enough. I still have some things to work out, and then I'll be ready. I'm just not the right person. You want somebody who is sitting in first class on their way to glory, not somebody who is slipping inside the gate right as it closes and is going to maybe hang out in cargo on the way to glory. Um, beloved, nothing's further than the truth. That is your conscience that Jesus came to purify. There, there is a difference, beloved, between humility Genuine God-given humility and self-hate, self-loathing. There's a difference between a desire for excellence and being to insisting on perfection. Beloved, if we need to wait until we are perfect or fully sanctified or fully mature before we start serving, we will no one will serve. Because that's just not the case. And there are no first class. And coach class Christians, beloved, we are all one in Jesus Christ, and we've all been gifted 
for service. That is a promise. It's a promise of, the, of God's new covenant that he will truly forgive us, truly draw us near, and truly equip us for the service that he has set before us. And as we become a particular church, beloved, it is all the more necessary that we serve together as a body. There's a lot of work to do, and he has called you and me to do it. And when we talk about work, you know, work sometimes, work. But the work of the Lord is not a burden. Jesus said just the opposite. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. Perhaps we get overburdened because we haven't given ourselves to the work of service. We haven't experienced that joy, or we're going about it in the wrong way. We're trying to go about it in our own strength, or we're going about it in slavish fear rather than a gift that we've been given. Beloved, we've been made to serve the Lord with joy, and we will only find our, that joy as we serve the Lord with the confidence and the, the, the strength that we've been made to do. Um, and Jesus Christ came to set us free so that we could do that. He came to draw us near. So let's talk just a moment about what, what we mean by when we say serve. You know, he says to serve the living God. What, what exactly does that mean? We have to see it as worship. The, the Greek term that our author uses is a worship term that was used for the priests. They, as the priests would serve in the, te- uh, the temple, the tabernacle, so he's calling us to serve as priests. So it begins perhaps by talking about our service in cor- corporate worship. We have the right, this is not an obligation, this is a right to gather together as God's people. This is a place where God equips us for service. This is a place where God unites us as a family of believers with various gifts for service. This is where we are determined how we ought to serve as God's people together. So we need to give ourselves to worship, not as a obligation, not as a optional thing, but wholehearted worship drawing near to him. Uh, service is serving in the work of the church, the church as a whole, not Zion specifically, but yes, Zion, but I mean the church as a whole has been given a mission to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, to serve those within the body, to serve, to, to uh, extend the kingdom. That, every one of us has a part in that. Every one of us has been equipped with gifts for service. We will be deficient as a body, inefficient in our calling if any one of us does not serve. We must serve with our gifts. We must be active in that. And part of that is also serving in discipleship. And that's a word, that a fancy word. That I don't want to get hung up on the, the definition of it, but let's just talk about growing each other in Christ to do that work, growing in our knowledge of who God is, what he's called us to do, and how to 
use those gifts for the sake of the kingdom. So some of us, it's easier for of us to serve. We've been given particular gifts of service. It's, it lights our fire to serve. Others of us are more hesitant. We, we have to be bringing others along. We have to be figuring out how to plug each other in. And that's, a, that's one of the gifts of our deacons. Deacons are servants par excellence. If you don't know exactly how to serve, talk to a deacon. I'm sure they can get you plugged in. I'm sure they've got lots of ideas of how to get you serving. Um, But also, discipleship involves sharing the love of Christ with those who don't know. It's uh, evangelism falls under discipleship. And, I mean, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there's a lot of work for us to do, but the workers are few. And so I think it's helpful for us to remember that part of evangelism, part of sharing the gospel is gathering more workers for the sake of the kingdom, gathering more brothers and sisters to work alongside, to benefit from their gifts, but not to check out, but not to check out. Sometimes you know, I've been in jobs where it's like, okay, we have a new employee. Well, great. Now all these things that I was doing, I no longer have to do. Like, and now I can kick back and take it easy. Beloved, when, when we grow weary, um, the answer is not to stop serving. The answer is to evaluate why are we weary in our service? Are we weary because we've, we're laboring in our own strength rather than drawing near to Christ? Have we made this not a relational thing, an act of worship with our God? Has it become a set of tasks that we have to do because no one else is doing? Is it because we're overburdening ourselves? Is it a source of pride? Like we're trying to take too much on ourselves rather than letting others serve in ways that we might not find perfect? Is it... There's, there's, a, there's a, a source there of our weariness. But it's, the answer is to draw near to Christ, to draw near to the Lord. We, we will never find our rest apart from our God. We will never find our rest apart from service to our God. But we need to rest in our service and let him serve through us. Service is not something that we've been given as a slavish task. We are not slaves. We are children. That our God has lavished this gift. This is how he grows us and knits us together. It's, it's a gift from our God that will produce joy. Now, some of, some of us are busy raising families, and you might be saying, you know, Mark, everything you're saying sounds good, but like right now it is all that I can do just to raise my family. And I've got these kids, I've got a lot of kids and not a lot of time, <laughs> not a lot of energy. How isn't my primary responsibility with my kids? And my answer is, you know, amen and yes. Amen and yes. And yet you need to orient your thoughts along what God's word says that your parenting, our parenting responsibilities is service to the Lord and must be conditioned by God's word. You, you 
and I who are parents have been given the responsibility and the right to raise up, to train and nurture the next generation of God's church. So teach your kids how to serve. Teach them these, these truths. Teach them to rest in Jesus Christ even as they serve with their gifts. It means train them in God's word so that they understand these things, but set an example for them. Help them to see you serving and then look for opportunities to push them to a service and encourage them in their walk in grace. This is a gift for every one of God's people, regardless of our age, regardless of where we've been. And if that man who was in Piper's church were right here, weeping over what the time that he lost, my words to him would be, Jesus Christ came to forgive even lost time, even wasted time. And if, if your conscience convicts you of the time that you've wasted, know that Christ died even for that. But now, given the freedom in Christ, go and serve him with all of your might. There was a man, C.T. Studd, 19th century uh, British man who was born into a wealthy and influential family in England, but he left all that to go into the mission field, eventually ended up serving in China and India and Africa. Um, he's not known for all that. He's known primarily for a poem that he wrote. And uh, the famous line of that poem was this, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Beloved, Jesus Christ came to purify you for service, to make you fit for service, to draw you near, to make you willing for service. Our God loves you, and he has given you this gift. So let us serve him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And praise be to God. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you know us so deeply, that you've done everything that we need in order to be brought near to you. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us for these things and help us to serve you with joy. Tear, tear aside all fears of, and um, guilt of failures, but help us to just grow in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.